Welcome to the Bedpost Podcast. I, of course, am your host, Aaron Pym, and what I like to do here on the pod is bring fun and sexy guests into the studio to talk about sex and sexuality. Today, I am super excited to welcome back, back, back to the podcast again, Ray from Share With Ray. She's also a certified sex educator and sexuality coach. Oh my God. Hi, Ray. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing so well. I love chatting with you, so I'm super excited. Me too. I'm also excited to be back because last time I was on the pod with you, I was not a certified sex educator Uh and now I am. So that's very exciting for me. That is so amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. That's what you do with your pandemic time. You know, some people enjoyed the time off and other people (laughs) decided to use it as personal time to forward their life goals. Hell yes. Yeah. Because you've caught on before. um, You're talking about latex. Um, at one point, you were here on behalf of Oasis Aqua Lounge at one point, but I feel Something, like yeah. now you're on a trajectory, a, a, a sexual health uh, trajectory, which is so awesome. Yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, I still do some latex, but it's just not mm-hmm. where I'm putting my energy as much these days. Like, there, it was never, it was never going to grow to the point where it could be my focus, so... Yeah. Yeah. So I'm still doing it. I'm just doing other things that are more in line with, uh, you know, I'm a purpose driven individual. So I really wanted to do things that were in line with that purpose. Yeah. Are you podcasting um, as well still? Because that was that was the thing. You got me on your podcast for a little while. Sex News with Ray. Yeah. Yeah. So I stopped with episode 69 where I uh, interviewed my mom. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly because... I'm sure you can understand this, but it was oh a little bit challenging to find guests. And there was a little bit of a high barrier of research that was required of my guests. Yeah, And right. so it was, yep. it became challenging with everything reopening to find people who had the time, had schedule that, that aligned. But I'm really proud of it. And I still have the episodes up for anyone who wants to learn about like, uh, you know, sex in Judaism or the sex ed culture or just talk about sex in pop culture, because that's kind of what the podcast was and I was doing it while I was earning my certification and doing other things so yeah Yeah. so then I graduated and was like oh I don't know if I have the time to to try and schedule guests in different time zones with different full-time jobs yeah but totally you know 100% fair Um, but yeah I do want to point out that I purposefully ended on episode 69 (laughs) while I interviewed my mom that was on purpose (laughs) and also a mom interview I I think that's Mm -hmm. pretty fucking perfect to just wrap it up in a neat little bow well, I don't know about you, but like, don't you ever, I feel like one of the most common questions I get being a public hoe mm. is like, well, what do your parents think? What does your husband think? And it's like, well, why let's don't we? Let's ask her. Yeah, let's get her on. And that way, whenever people ask it, I can say, why don't you listen to episode 69 of my podcast and oh stop God. asking me? You know? I love that for you. I really love that for you. I'm going to go back and listen um, because yeah. that if that's a fantastic plug. Sex News yeah. with Ray, everybody. Um, <laughs> Thanks. But now, okay, but now, since, like, your life is kind of on this new path, um, new topics, you know, are available for us to talk about, right? We've got, like, um, I think, like, two main ideas of the things we wanted to cover. Yeah. 
Well, I was listening to one of your previous episodes and you were talking about kinking trauma. And I think I texted you saying, I actually have information that could be helpful for you here. Yes. Like harm reduction surrounding kink. I think like one of the things that I was talking about in that episode that you heard was like a question I get sometimes with people who are like, um, kind of going into the depths of their mind with kink for like the first time, like they, like they're asking, like, how do you know, you know, if it's doing me good or if it's doing me harm, like playing with things like degradation, humiliation, like things surrounding my identity and my orientation, perhaps my, my gender, um, and, uh, yeah, kind of confronting like, you know, patriarchal heteronormal normative scripts and stuff like this. It's like people kind of feel conflicted when they're jumping into stuff like this. And I'm so happy you reached out because I would love to talk about how we can do this safely and healthfully. You know what I mean? Yeah, so there's a lot of different factors going into this, right? Mm -hmm. First, there's the idea that kink is play and sex is play and connection is about exploring that aspect of ourselves and play. It's why we call them play parties. Yeah. So there's a certain element of this that is play acting. Um, So there is a study that I will get you the link to. Okay. But it talks about the people who are healing their trauma through kink and the context upon which this healing occurs. Mm. And there's two main findings that there's a lot of sub findings, but the way that I'll summarize it for you is the first finding is that when people are in kink spaces and they're in the right context, they're able to, you know, unpack things that happen to them, be really mindful about it, learn that mindful connection and get to explore things that otherwise would have been really scary in a context that is um, letting you explore things in a way that you can't in a therapist's office or explore things in a way that you can't in other aspects of your life. So that's sort of like a, like a, I mean, that might be like a, like a shitty summary because it's so much information but the other part of it that like there was so I'm like it's kind of I'm like if anyone who like did that study heard me say that they'd probably be like that's not what we said and I'm like no not exactly (laughs) but kind of yeah 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 Yeah. there is a context upon which you're able to create a safe container in a therapist's office where you can observe your trauma or observe these things and get to explore them and the other place that you can create that safe container is in a kink space, assuming it's done in that safe space, right? Where you are aware of what you're getting into, you know it's a scene, you know there's a beginning and an ending, and I'll get into a little bit more of that after. Great. But then the other part of that that creates healing is the social community and social norms around kink. So even if for people who had maybe sex negative therapists who are healing their trauma through kink, yeah. uh, if they had a sex positive community that they were part of, Um, people who were able to say, you are not your kink. It is just an aspect of you. You are not your trauma. It's just something you experienced, right? Like, and then you have a lot of people saying like, here's how you do it safely. Here's how we're going to make sure that safety is first. So the sex positive, affirming safety first community Mm -hmm. also is what creates space for healing around kink and basically being able to do it safely. Mm -hmm. So then, so that's one study that was really interesting that I highly recommend people read because once again, that was a huge oversimplification and there was so much more into it, but that's like the bare bones main message. Awesome. I'd love to share that with people as well. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So then the other thing that people talk about when talking about trauma and kink specifically is that for people who are healing trauma, 
there's usually a three-step process that happens in with some sort of trauma-informed social worker or therapist or coach or or I'll just call them a professional at this point because there's lots of different kinds of professionals who work in this area. So there is step one, which is skill building, right? So for someone who is being traumatized in some way, maybe they need to learn how to set boundaries for themselves. Maybe they need to learn what a healthy relationship looks like. Maybe they need to learn how to advocate for themselves. And then once they've learned certain skills that take them out of an area of acute pain, then you re-examine the traumatizing incident. This might be through talk therapy, right? And then the last step for trauma healing is reintegration. So this would be um, getting into a new relationship that's healthy, using these skills, you know, moving past that and then reintegrating in with healthy connection. So that's how you would do that in the space with a professional uh, in like a more traditional therapy setting. Okay. And there's direct parallels to a kink scene. Skill building, consent. How do we communicate consent? Are we using um, a shorthand for it? How do we negotiate ahead of time a consensual scene? Um, so that's, that's like all of the skill. And if I'm going to do this, do I need to learn anything? Like I need to keep scissors nearby or what's a safe way to choke or, you know, those like physical, tangible safety skills, the observing the trauma would happen in the scene. You are not just talking about it. You can reenact it, right? You can reenact a traumatic experience in small ways and big ways. And then after the reintegration would be aftercare. And showing that even though you did this thing, they're still coming from a place of care. And and that's sort of the, the way that people see those parallels. Now, one thing that came up over and over again in the research is that if you are going to try and actively heal your trauma through kink, like this is something you're doing intentionally, then you need to be intentional. You need to be aware of what you're doing. The people that you are playing with need to be aware that you are maybe reenacting some of your trauma. It can't be happening unmindfully. You need to be the way that Angie Gunn, another great sex educator who talks about this a lot, talks about it, who I cannot find on the internet, by the way. I've been trying to connect with her and have no idea. So if anyone knows where she is or how to contact her, please let me know. She talks about staying in your power. When you're in your power, you are healing your trauma. You are not recreating and re-traumatizing yourself. As soon as you are triggered or checked out, you're recreating the harm and doing it over and over again. So you are trying to reenact it to provide different outcomes, not recreate it to re-traumatize yourself. So let's give a really common example of what people like to think of, which would be consensual non-consent. Yes, that's like the number one example. So let's say someone was was, um, uh, assaulted in some way and they were unable to say no or they did and it was ignored right so for someone who was in that scenario they might find it to be a healing experience to put themselves back in that position with someone they trust and be able to communicate their consent and their limits and their safe words Mm -hmm. and have that be respected and that puts them keeps them in their power and that also is what creates the healing they did it again and they were listened to and they trusted themselves and they trust the partner. And if you were traumatized in some way and you're aware of it and you know and you're becoming aware that you're using kink and it's coming from a place of trauma and you don't want to recreate it because you're now aware of that and you're trying to heal it, once again, you need your partner to know what what that is. They need to consent to be doing this with you. Certainly. And you you need to be able to tell your partner what it looks like if you disassociate or if you're triggered or what that's going to look like, right? 
Because if you're doing this with someone who's a dom, they don't want to traumatize you. Certainly but not. disassociation looks like active participation to an outsider. Yeah, it could, right? Yeah. Yeah, not every time, obviously. Yeah. Sometimes they're like, oh. So, like, people describe it as their eyes go glassy. But, like, sometimes when you're in subspace, Same it can thing look similarly. Yeah. Right. So there needs to be sort of, like, uh, maybe in that case you would build in a verbal check-in. Where if you, like, every five minutes the sub has to say a certain key phrase. And if they stop saying it, the play ends. You know, things like that. Like, there's lots of ways that you can build that into it. So, are you doing harm to yourself by exploring your kinks? and doing things that are humiliating. No, all of us have experienced a lot of trauma in small ways and big ways in our lives. That's just like, I like to say trauma with like a lowercase T, not a capital T, you know? Like right. we've yep. all experienced things that like created weird kinks for us. We were just all because bullied, you're doing... we were all, yeah. you know, like, yeah. yeah. We all had shitty the brain... experiences in school. <laughs> like Yeah, and we don't have enough knowledge about kink in the brain and how they're formed yet. Uh, like we know foot fetishes and how they're like that circuitous bypass, right? Like they're like the, I'm, I'm doing such a bad explanation of that, but foot fetishes are quite common because of neurobiology. Um, with other things, we're not quite sure how they're caused, but what I'll say is if you are not recreating your trauma, you're not leaving a scene feeling triggered, you're not leaving a scene feeling bad or negative or bad about yourself, mm -hmm. then you're not creating harm. If you are doing a scene and it's fun and you feel good and then it's done and you can leave that interaction feeling good, then it's not harming you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think I was also trying to, because as a facilitator, that's something I obviously want to be mindful of. And I feel like people do the thing where they're playing with the kink and they're not, as you said, like really intentionally um navigating maybe some past trauma big t little t trauma whatever it is um they're not like intentionally disclosing that to me um mm -hmm. or maybe being self-aware about it they're just like oh i just like humiliation scenes i like humiliation scenes surrounding i don't know my body and like that i'm a loser and stuff like this and not really creating like the parallels to to that and like getting off on it and then maybe feeling shame after or confusion after i feel yeah. like that's really common and, and i think that's where aftercare is really helpful right yes, like if someone's yes. feeling confused or shame you can help them work through it during aftercare you're also a professional yeah right so like you understand that to a certain extent you are taking on that role potentially with the aftercare role and you do your best to screen for it i'm sure and do Maybe harm not. I don't know. Surrounding it. Yeah. Yeah. The average dom who might not be paid. Like the when I say average dom, I mean like literally the people who just are doing this for fun in their Playing own around lives. Playing around in their bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're caring individuals, but maybe they're not professionals. They're not interacting with this. They might not be aware yeah. of what's going on. They're not trauma informed. You know, health healthcare workers or yes. whatever. Like your partner might not be trauma informed. And so that's where you run into some issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what maybe for folks like that who maybe are doing scenes that are maybe emotionally intense and like really cathartic in the moment and they feel good in the moment, they're hot and all that stuff. And then after they kind of have that drop um, when some of this stuff maybe is sinking in. Um, what are maybe some some conversation points or like questions we can ask each other after if we're noticing this happening to us? to kind of help that aftercare process like you like you mentioned. Yeah. So I don't have the perfect questions that you can ask because some people like things phrased differently. Yeah, and I'm yeah, throwing this I at you say, right now. 
Yeah, I would yeah. say that the main areas you want to try and explore are what are you feeling in your body right now that isn't necessarily subdrop, right? Are you feeling tightness in your chest or throat, you know? Why don't we do some breathing together? And then when you're feeling a little bit like that tightness is loosened, why don't I give you a massage? When that tightness is loosened, you can say things like, what what's the story you're telling yourself about what we just did, right? Like what do you sometimes it's like not just what are you feeling? It's like what's the message? So is it that like I don't deserve love? Is it that like I'm dirty? Is it that I should feel shame? Some people feel like they should feel shame, so they do. Right. <laughs> Versus yeah. like like you don't it, you know, you you don't have to or like even like why do you feel ashamed right now? What we did was beautiful. Right? And then you can affirm that like what we did together was beautiful and consensual and and like it was just the scene. Yeah, reassure not, them that that was the in scene. that. Yes, yeah. yes, that that was in that container of play, and yeah. you know maybe if it was like some humiliation stuff that was happening or whatever, it was like affirming that that was just play and that was just pretend. Yeah. I actually and I don't really think these things you about and, you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the yeah, the questions you would want to ask your partner are like the physical and then the emotional, right? The same thing that you would do anyway if they're in sub drop. Um, but then if it's trauma, then you might want to revisit that later, right? Like if you're like, I'm a little concerned that you're feeling a lot of shame every time we play when we're done. I'm concerned that maybe what we're doing isn't being, isn't happening mindfully because for people like, li like in every piece of research that I read about this, the message that they said over and over is if you are actively trying to heal your trauma, you know, you have this trauma and you want to try and heal it through kink, you need to be doing it in conjunction with a trauma-informed specialist of some sort. Yes. Because you need to be mindful about it. And a lot of us aren't mindful, but as soon as we start to become aware that maybe this is coming from a place of trauma, mm -hmm. maybe we're recreating the trauma, maybe this is something we want to do it, it's not going to cure you of your kink. I say cure dramatically, yes. right? <laughs> you're still gonna have the kink. It's not like you're gonna be like, oh, now I never wanna be humiliated. But now, when you're doing those scenes, it's gonna be from a place of like inner power so imagine if you could enjoy it in the container and then not feel the shame when you're out of it. Mm -hmm. That would be the purpose of trying to heal your trauma through kink. Yeah. To like reduce that shame, reduce the activation when you're in those scenes and out of them. Um, and people do find kink to be a very healing process when they're doing it mindfully. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for that. That's all very helpful. Um, yeah. I'm curious, oh, what about... I have... hmm? Oh, I just, I have one last tip for people who might Please. want to actively try and heal their kink. One thing that I tell people, which could be a great option, your partner might not be the right person to do it with you or to do the scene because they might be uncomfortable with the scene or maybe they can't do it in the right way. I'm a big fan of hiring a professional. Hell yeah. If you know that this is something you want, then you send a tip with that opening message saying, hi there, I'm trying to do this thing. I am looking for someone who can help me build this scene specifically and the purpose would be this. I am working with a therapist. I would love for my partner to be in the room to help be there for aftercare. Mm -hmm. Are you interested and what are your rates? Right? <laughs> if you're paying for therapy. That is a hell of an opening email right there. Bra right. fucking And then you as, you as the <laughs> professional can then say, you know what? I don't feel equipped to deal with this. I am not a trauma-informed specialist. Yep. I'm a little worried. Or you could say, like, can I please have more details of what you'd be expecting from me? Are you working with a therapist on it? You know what I mean? Yes. Like, I am, you know, before I say yes to your request, I would like some more information, you know, like that. And then because the person that you're doing it with needs to consent to doing that with you. Yes. So definitely. why not hire a professional who can consent to that and also, you know, make exactly the scene you want? 
You don't need to worry about this becoming what your partner wants out of it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And creating like really good harm reduction surrounding it. That experience. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. it's really intentional. Yeah. And I was talking to one one client about this actually, who like yeah. this was part of their plan that we were building towards like together with each other. Mm-hmm. And um, they essentially said like, okay, I'm like, okay, so what happens when you do this thing and you've set up the exact same scenario that happened to you when you were a child and they want to do something you don't want to do? What do you do? And they said, I guess I just go along with it. And I'm like, no, you say no. You say, I don't consent to that. And that's where your healing's going to happen, right? You're going to recreate the scene that was traumatizing as a child. And you're going to say no when you feel called to say no, right? Like you don't have to recreate the scene and re-traumatize yourself. You get to say no. That's the whole point. And a professional will know to stop. Yes. Yeah. They don't have any alternative motives of like... They're there for you. They're there to facilitate this for you, facilitate this fantasy, the healing, all of that with no like personal motives. Yes, exactly. Totally. So that's sort of, um, that's, that's everything I have to say on that. I'm sorry. I know you had a question. I just wanted to make sure that I know that's that's... hire a professional as part of this conversation. I I mean, me of all people love that you mentioned that. Um, (laughs) One thing I wanted to ask just um, on this topic is something that happens commonly is that folks explore their own um, sexuality and orientation through, this is common, like with, um, same-sex attraction perhaps with things Mm, like cross-dressing gender play forced by by, yeah all of that stuff and and humiliation surrounding stuff like this like sissy sissification is a kink and stuff like that like how how um can we kind of more mindfully practice these types of kinks where we're confronting some of these like long-held narratives I really, so first of all, one of the reasons I love how you do your practice, if you will, is that you assign people readings when you punish them, like feminist (laughs) and social justice readings, because I honestly think that's the only control we have over this. There are a lot of people out there who are just not in touch with these conversations. Yes. So they're not aware of the fact that the reason they want to be humiliated by their dress as a woman is because, you know, they've been taught that feminine femininity is inferior. Yes. Like, they're not aware of that. It's based on misogyny, actually. Yeah. Yeah. uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So here's Mm. the thing. I don't have a good answer for that. I think anyone who's listening to your podcast by this point is becoming aware or is already aware of this so they can be mindful about it. Yeah. And I think that it's okay if we say, you know what? I respect women. I respect that there's nothing wrong with being a woman and the things associated with femininity. And this is my kink and it gets me off. So I'm going to do it. Yeah. And I think as far as that goes, like... Something I certainly started to do coming up against of this as a facilitator, like because this is very common request stuff in this kind of arena is for um, because I don't know how self-aware the person is that's inquiring. I don't know, you know, what they're kind of exploring. So what was helpful for me to early on was for me to ask questions to make sure that I'm at least facilitating like ethical scenes surrounding stuff like this. So yeah, questions um, just surrounding like their actual values, you know, surrounding homosexuality, surrounding uh, trans folks, surrounding all of that. Is this just a kink from their upbringing, from their childhood, right? We know so much about attachment theory now. Our our childhoods manifest in very strange ways in our adult lives. It doesn't necessarily (laughs) mean that you're, you know, homophobic or hate women, it might just mean that your brain is processing the information you learned from society in a really weird way. 
Yeah. And like something that is an alternate to stuff like that is like, because we talked about kind of the darker uh, ways we can associate, you know, stuff like this is like to do the other side of the coin, which would be like by encouragement, like being dressed up and being affirmed for looking pretty and feminine and all of those things. It's like, yeah, that see how can that feels. be and see how that feels. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just an I, idea. Yeah. I had my OnlyFans for about two, three years over the pandemic. I also, it's another thing I stopped because I just didn't want to spend my energy on it anymore. It wasn't mm-hmm. worth, wasn't worth the money, honestly, or the mental energy of demanding entitled people. Um, <laughs> you're providing a service. I understand I was providing a service, but sometimes I would just get so upset at like the inherent sexism and like entitlement that I was like, yeah. nah, man. But I said no, and I had really strong boundaries. And one of the things that I would say no to all the time, I did dick ratings because I yeah. hate dicks for art and love looking, love, love talking about people's dicks. I would like talk about their, their photo as if it was like fine art. Yeah, um, I love that. And I would have people be like. SPH, wanting SPH. Can you, can you humiliate me? Tell yep. me it's small. And I'm like, and I would make it very clear. I do not, I do not do body humiliation. Yep. I don't do humiliation of any kind ever. I, it feels wrong. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't make me feel good. And the more I say something out loud, the more my brain's going to start doing that all the time for everyone. So I was like, I don't want to get my brain used to humiliating people. That doesn't sound like something that I want to be involved in. So I just made it very clear that if they were looking for humiliation, they needed to go somewhere else. And so as a service provider, it's just knowing what you're willing to do or not do. And you can have a speech ready. Like, I don't do humiliation because it makes me uncomfortable because I, you know, it makes me uncomfortable for all these reasons. And I think that your body is normal and fine. And if that's what you're looking for, you're going to have to go to a service provider who is prepared to do that. And for like just the casual kinkster, once again, a little bit of self-awareness is fine, but it's when you start to feel like it's when the play starts reaching outside of play that there's an issue. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's when I would sort of look at what I'm doing and look at the messages I'm telling myself and maybe go to therapy or maybe just buy uh, a help a self-help book with a workbook to work through you know <laughs> buy the or talk it out with some other kink yeah. friends yeah you know there's yeah. like lots of options sometimes we just talk things out with our friends but our friends need to be people who we we really trust that they have good instincts when it comes to emotional intelligence yeah and maybe have some experience with some of this stuff like maybe another yeah. kinkster or whatever or sex yeah worker not or like wh- whomever yeah yeah, not like your fuck boyfriend who who has doesn't doesn't even know the words attachment theory. You know, like maybe not that. <laughs> yeah, maybe not him. <laughs> Anyone but him. Uh, <laughs> no, I think that's um I think that's really uh, a good thing to point out that like um just in general. I mean, it, again, like uh, the people that listen to this, this is going to be you know a, a given for them. But anyone that's listening for the first time, perhaps like as a top or as a dominant in a doing any of the things we mentioned that can be kind of emotionally dicey you know you absolutely can have uh, boundaries surrounding that so thanks for uh for talking about that as well because it can be just as harmful right for the person facilitating those types of scenes yes 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 we want to make sure that everyone's like sometimes i see this more in polyamory community than kink community i think kink Mm -hmm. has gotten really good at like everyone gets to consent everyone gets to say no Um, everyone can say no. I've noticed that like in a lot of the poly space, I'm in so many poly meme groups and like poly, Yeah. I get all of my memes from like all of the poly meme groups and the poly advice groups and like I, all of the things I post my stories are from there. 
And I've noticed there's like a lot of judgment on people wanting to veto something. There's so much judgment on a partner wanting to say no and set limits and boundaries on their other partner that it creates a really weird space where like, if you want to say no and set limits, you're judged for it. Right. So yeah. Yeah. it's just something that I started to note. And this isn't true of the individuals that I speak to. This isn't true of the in-person interactions I have. This is only a thing that you start to see in like the advice you're seeing in these groups online, which is so fascinating. So I just want to remind everyone in any alternative lifestyle community that it's okay to say no. You don't, you're not going to be judged for saying no. And if you are, that's a sign about the person, not about your boundaries. Yeah. Get as long as you're friends. coming from like a healthy place, but like you can still <laughs> say no for now while you work through whatever that is. Yeah. And also the thing I'll just mention real quick is any of the things that we talked about, we're not saying these are like bad kinks, they're harmful kinks in general, just like to approach any kink a little mindfully is probably good advice. Yeah, consensual non-consent is hot. We can all, most of us can agree, if we're listening to your podcast and kinky, that like CNC is hot and none of us (laughs) want to be assaulted ever. And just because I want my partner to get really rough and hurt me, maybe, doesn't mean (laughs) that I want the stranger (laughs) on the street to do that, nor do I want this random man on FetLife in his opening message to tell me that he wants to do that to me. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with me. It's just like a fun thing that I like to do. And there's appropriate places to explore that and inappropriate places to explore that. Like in an opening message on FetLife would be an inappropriate place to explore that. I think that's important also to mention, like, you know, you can have boundaries surrounding who um like who you explore certain kinks with like if one feels a little like a little more emotionally intimate and maybe some stuff like that might come up you know some emotionally complicated feelings it's okay to like not do that type of play casually for instance or like only do it with a professional or only doing it with like somebody you really really trust and have lots of rapport maybe they're queer like you are so you don't mind be calling being called a queer slur with that person in that context in that space you know what i mean like yeah and just to try and also clock that for yourself it's like when and where did it feel good and bad and you can absolutely make boundaries surrounding that right and like studies have also shown that people who are kinky tend to be like less neurotic less anxious i can link you to that study too less neurotic nice. less anxious and more more self-aware because you have to be to do this safely so like most people who are kinky are already sort of on that journey Post podcast is sponsored by Come As You Are. Founded as a worker-owned cooperative, Come As You Are has a fundamentally anti-capitalist and feminist approach to sexual pleasure, health, and education. Come As You Are doesn't profit from your pleasure and only stocks products that they truly love and believe in. Come As You Are has been voted best sex shop in Toronto since 1997. Check them out at comeasyouare.com or 254 Augusta Avenue in Toronto's own Kensington Market. We are also sponsored by Club M4 Toronto. Club M4 is the largest sexually charged lifestyle club in the GTA. And now you can go to their website www.clubm4.com If anything looks interesting and you want to check it out, head on down to Club M4 at 1989 Dundas Street, Mississauga.
tell you a fun story. And by fun, I mean horrible. Would you like to hear it? Oh, God, maybe. <laughs> and everything to do with my Jewish Holocaust generation identity. Yes, please. Um, <laughs> okay. First of all, I once told someone, someone said, what's your background? And I said, Ashkenazi, Polish, like Jew. And they said, what a sexy mix. And I'm like, oh, God. And I face palmed. So for those of you who don't know this, Ashkenazi is the ethno-cultural word for the white Jews that you meet. We on 23andMe, it'll say Ashkenazi Jew. Okay. Like that's, that is the, the designation. We have our own like genetic disorders. Anyway, so when I was in my early 20s, I was seeing this guy who was 29. He was poly. He was married. They did amateur porn together. And like 19 year old me was like, yeah, this is everything I want in my future. <laughs> and he asked me if I would be willing to film a porn with his wife where she was the German Nazi and I was the um, Holocaust victim. Goodness me. Which, of course, my first thought was, but I'm fatter than her. So I don't see how that's going to play out. Because <laughs> I'm not going to look deal. like a fucking... My first thought was, but I don't look skeletal. It won't She's be so realistic. Much like, oh I'm God. like, that not only wouldn't be realistic. Like, my first thought was like, not only would that not be realistic, but my second thought was like, no. But then my third thought was, you literally tell me all the time about indigenous rights. How dare you ask this of me? Yeah. So I politely said no. But I was also like a dumb 20-year-old who was like getting anti-Semitic and like sexist comments all the time. Yeah. So I was just like, oh, all right, this is normal. And like looking back on it, I was like, I should have been more outraged. I just, uh, I wonder at the audacity of some people. That's interesting because like on, for instance, like I would never contribute to these threads. Um, and I'm for sure I'm not contributing to this conversation either because I'm a very white person. Um, but like from, you know, people asking basically like is anybody actually into race play that is not just you know trying to get a, a pass for being racist you know what i mean like uh, from what uh, i observed yeah. it was like well people who do have backgrounds of oppression it can be healing to for them to you know explore this type of thing and you know other people yeah. being like oh my god i never thought of it that way is that something that like considering the story you just told, is that something that makes sense at all to you? Here's what I'll say. Um, the same ways that you can heal trauma through kink, some of these, like, honestly, the generational trauma of the Holocaust is huge. Yes. So I myself have not met a Jewish person who wants to explore the Holocaust in their kink. That being said, if you did want, if a Jewish person did want to explore it, they would probably keep that to themselves because of all the stigma. So I can't say it doesn't exist. But I can say that I could see it being possible. I just not pers I have not personally met someone who is interested in that. I could see context being really important. A yes. partner who loves you, who knows it is just play. It could be healing or yeah. at least something kinky and fun. Um, someone who is. Oh, OK. I do have a comparison. It's not an exact comparison, but I'll give a similar one. Um, I was once seeing this guy who was like into being more dominant and I was like looking for more dominant partners but I met him in vanilla world mm -hmm. and the more I got to know him the more it became clear that he believed in like gender roles in a relationship and um but you know like I was an exception you know things like that and I wasn't in a relationship with him but it was very much like there are the women that you fuck and then there's the woman you marry right 
and she's got to be pure. So he was also seeing someone at the time, casually like dating, and he was not doing anything with her because that's just not how it worked in his culture. She had to stay pure. That was the way to do anything. And in the meantime, he's like, you know, meeting me in my car for things. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And so at one point, I don't always want to be like, like, you know, dealt with aggressively, but this one particular night I was in the mood for it. And it was like turning me on to like the idea that like, you know, oh, we were doing this like thing we shouldn't do. And like, oh, he should just like, you know, like force me to do it. And I was fine, like just blowing him with nothing in return. Like that whole thing was like turning me on. And he said out loud, oh, she likes to be used. And I was like, excuse me? And I'm like, what? I don't like to be, what? Like, maybe in this one context, yeah. And then later we had this whole conversation, like, literally that, like, later that night, we're like, well, yeah, he's going to do this stuff with me, but, like, not with someone from his culture and not with someone who he's going to marry. That wouldn't be respectful, right? And I was like, oh, so you see me as someone that you can fuck, but not someone to be respected. You say you respect me. Yeah, you literally do see me as someone you can use. Exactly. So if it had just been play, that would have been a fun time. Biggest yeah. turnoff was realizing that it wasn't about just the play and that this um, like this sexist dynamic was infiltrating. Every- like it became very clear that night. Okay. Yes, and that yes. is when I stopped having this person as a partner, I like yeah. as a play partner. So I would say that for me from that one example, I could see this happening really well with a trusted partner it's the container it's yep. a safe space it's just play you both know it's just play and you both know that this is never going to exit the bedroom yes right yeah i could see this i don't know very many people who would feel safe enough with one person to do that yep. so i think it's not just what it is it's who you're doing it with that's yes. yep. that you could do something like that and have it be play Yes, totally. And again, like, never fucking, never make this an opening message. Like, just get the fuck out of here. Like, Like, the stuff we're talking about right now is, like, not not casual types of play with casual partners and casual hookups. And I find it, like, it's really frustrating that Hugo Boss designed the Nazi uniform. Like, that's why people like to wear it, because it's so stylish. Yeah, oh, I guess people don't know that. Like, the Nazi uniform was designed, I'm pretty sure, by Hugo Boss. It's a very stylish uniform. That's not an excuse to want to put it on, uh, you know, without understanding the greater cultural context upon which you're doing this. Like, it's not a costume. My culture isn't a costume, you know. Anyway, (laughs) I can acknowledge it's a stylish uniform. That doesn't mean I want my partner to put it on and yell at me in German. Anyway. (laughs) Too far? Okay. Just far enough, right? Too too spicy? Just far enough. Yeah, just (laughs) spicy enough. Um, Okay, I feel like we should switch gears to, um, we wanted to, so we want, I mean, certified self, uh, sex, sexual health educator uh, over here. Um, So one thing, I believe maybe I saw a post of yours this time. Um, I feel like maybe at one point on your Insta, you were talking about STIs a bunch, like what I learned in high school versus, Versus you know, what what should be taught. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was like you got to come on the podcast and talk about STIs um 
you know, uh, at some point, and you were like, hell yes. So I definitely want to save a good chunk of time to talk about Let's STIs. do it. Let's do Let's it. talk about STIs. My favorite topic, because people are so afraid to talk about it. Yeah. Which is so interesting. Um, maybe not people who are, like, very active in the community, but, like, so, like it is a topic that, that people... It's taboo. I mean, I think for me and you, it's really common and easy and comes natural. Like, I'll talk about STIs at the dinner table with kids around, and people are like, stop! And I'm like, why? It's why, information. Though? Yeah. Yeah. And then other people are like, they're not ready. And I'm like, ugh, okay. Yeah, you're right. It, it's it's health information. That's literally all it is. Like, obviously, yeah. there's a shit ton of um, stigma attached to it. But, like, when you get down to yeah. it, conversations like this, it's health information. So we'll share that someone got COVID at the dinner table, but we'll not share that someone got chlamydia because we don't want to think about people having sex if they're right. not someone we're having sex with, I guess. I guess. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. When I, I recently went in for an appointment to, uh, uh, you know, for a tubal ligation intake counseling session okay. and I went with my husband and I'm fine sharing this information because this is what I do and personal stories are humanizing. Yes, and literally certainly. at one point the, uh, the intake counselor like looked at the, the, the nurse, no, not the nurse, the resident looked at me, looked at my husband, looked back at me and went, I'm sorry if this is uncomfortable, but have you ever had an STI? And I was what? like, why would I, why would yeah. that be uncomfortable? because and that's the thing this person is trying to be really sensitive to the stigma yeah that like and that my husband's sitting in the what if my husband doesn't know and i like looked him dead in the eye and went yes let me tell you yes he's been there for half of them yeah like (laughs) you know (laughs) no yeah name one probably he's aware yeah (laughs) yeah no exactly like it was one of those really funny conversations so um yeah but that's how i feel about it right like we are all contributing it's one of those things where sometimes trying to be sensitive to the stigma also accidentally contributes to the stigma. Yeah, like that that health provider was trying to like be discreet for you if you, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, they're trying to be mindful in that conversation. But yeah, you're yeah. right. It's like, well, that's that's kind of sad if literally a husband and a wife can't talk about stuff like this. But but it's yeah. the truth. It is the reality, right? Yes. Yeah. But yeah, it's health. Sorry. So yeah, so it is health information. Uh, just to bring it back to that. Yep. Uh, but I find that the the biggest barrier to talking about it is in fact the stigma, which is why when I do STI education, I try when I, I have like a one and a half hour workshop where we do quite a bit of time on STI information. What do you need to know? And then I spend about half an hour on the stigma and unlearning the stigma and like learning about how it's infiltrated every aspect of our society, so people can start to unpack their own feelings towards it and the, their own messaging, because most of us learned symptoms here's what it looks like your genitals are going to look like the blue waffle and no one will fuck you ever again you're dirty if you got an sti and even though people who the the teachers who tried their best not to do that when you teach the best way to prevent an sti is to not have sex at all that's not helpful people are gonna right? have sex no matter exactly what. Yeah. doesn't matter if you're in the seventh grade you're preparing someone for your an adulthood of sexual activity so seventh grade the message shouldn't be the best way to prevent this is to not do it but if you are going to do it this is what you do the message should just be one of the ways you prevent stis is by not having sex that's true you can't manifest an sti out of nowhere two people having sex don't create an sti they are passed like a cold from person to person and there's a few ways that they're passed and you go into that information and if you don't want you know if you want to try and limit the amount of exposure that you have to this kind of an infection, here's what you can do. But the main message we are supposed to be teaching now is that as adults who are sexually active, you're gonna interact with STIs. That's common, it's normal. So the best thing you can do is to get tested regularly 
and make sure that you take care of anything if something comes up. And regularly is a conversation between you and your doctor. And the reason that we're going to get tested regularly is because most STIs don't show symptoms. Yep. When we teach people what symptoms look like, they think they're doctors and they try and look for them. Rather than saying most STIs are asymptomatic or could be missed, which is why you want to get tested regularly. Yes. So the, what we learn in high school, getting an STI means you fucked up big. What we should be learning is STIs are common and normal and preventable to a certain extent, and we should be doing our best to prevent them. But if you get one, here's what you do about it. Yeah, like something right? constructive, And reinforcing the please. here's what you do about it message. Yeah, like not just this, here's a fucking scary ass thing and not give you any resources surrounding what if this thing does happen to you? Because it might, you know, if you're going to be a sexually active adult, it might. So like mm -hmm. how, how, how helpful would that have been to have a conversation like that when you were younger? Have you, you noticed know? that like by the time you need the information, you've forgotten most of it? <laughs> right because they're teaching it to you in seventh grade eighth grade ninth grade yes. and we have this idea that like teenagers are sexually active which yes they're sexually active but that doesn't mean that they're all having piv it just yes. might mean that they're like kissing and doing some pants rubbing and like most people become more sexually active in university which is why you see a spike in stis the yep. most at-risk demographic for stis are people in their early 20s because that's when the information becomes relevant and that's when like i I don't know about you, but when I was 21, something I learned in a unit for a month in grade seven, eight, nine. Yeah. And the message was, here's what you look for. Yes. So don't have sex. Like, I didn't remember the main message. I mean, I knew you're supposed to get tested for STIs, but like, I didn't know how to have that conversation. And I remembered to be afraid of it. I remembered to be freaked out if I ever saw something like I that mm -hmm. carried over, but nothing concrete. Yeah. One of the things that stigma does is that if you are afraid of the answer, yes, yes, you have one. Then and you think that this is going tested. to ruin your life. Oof. Yeah, because if I know I have it and I have to tell people, then my sex life is over. But if I don't know about it and I don't need to think about it and I avoid thinking about it and avoid yeah. doing anything, well, I don't have anything. How, we've all heard the, uh, and I, when I say fuck boy, I'm going to use it as a gender neutral term. I'm referring to all people <laughs> who say person. this. <laughs> the fuck person. Oh, I don't have anything. I'm clean. To which, if someone ever says to you, I don't have anything, I'm clean, just the fact that they say I'm clean is a yeah, sign that a you need to right go, there. does that mean you've been tested? And also, does that mean someone with an STI is dirty? Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, you can just say, I am STI free. Do you have any STIs? When's the last time you were tested? I Clean and dirty. Yeah, I'm going to get into that in a second. Yeah. But literally, someone saying the word I'm clean is a, a virtue signal, a like signal that this person does not have good destigmatize it like they yes. just they don't have a, a good knowledge of stis yeah. because those are the people who don't get tested and think that because they have no symptoms they don't have anything yeah and that's the number one thing of like people that know their status are way safer to have sex with than people who don't than people who don't yeah and even if it's a person who has herpes and they're like hi hello i have herpes because i was just tested and that is what the test said like that person is way safer because then you build harm reduction surrounding surrounding that like versus just not caring and not knowing and having sex anyway here is the the average person's experience with herpes when it comes to getting tested, are you ready? Yes. Most places don't test you for herpes. Yes. When you're getting your STI screening, unless you explicitly request it, they are not testing you. And even then, they will try and convince you not to. And I once asked my, so I asked my, like, uh, my certification teacher, I was like, why is that? Why don't they test you? And she said, 
it is so common and so benign that it is a waste of public health dollars to do it when the only if thing it does is cause panic. Yeah. Right? Like knowing that you have herpes doesn't mean you're ever going to have an outbreak. Doesn't mean you're going to share it with anyone. Doesn't mean that you can prevent that if you never have an outbreak anyway because of how, how it works, which is like a whole other conversation. But like as adults, when you're having sex, you should go into an interaction assuming that you either have herpes or have already interacted with someone with herpes. Yep. Even yeah. if they haven't been tested, even if you're not being tested, assume everybody has herpes and your life will be easier. Yeah. I feel like anytime I see a lovely sexual health post like that on Instagram, for instance, the comments are littered with people being like, normalize herpes. Why would I normalize, like, I have a friend with cold sores. Why would I want that on my genitals? Why would we normalize that? Well, for most people with herpes, it doesn't, when I say benign skin infection, I mean, it's something that lives in, it's like psoriasis. It's the easiest comparison. Some people have psoriasis. Nothing ever happens. It never flares up. They just live with it and they know they have it. Sometimes it flares up and it's really itchy and irritable and, and frustrating and they try and take care of it and they put use a special cream. And like nobody judges them for going out in public and for talking having about psoriasis. psoriasis. Yeah. And psoriasis is far more irritating than just a lot of people with herpes. And people who get common reoccurring herpes outbreaks can take Antiretro, I think, yeah, anti the the viral, the antiretroviral, yeah. antiviral, antiviral, yeah, antiviral. Thank you. Yeah. That's the HIV language coming out. Anyway, <laughs> um, you can take medication for it that will keep them down. And like the reason people don't like getting outbreaks is because they're painful, yeah. not because when they happen for some people. Other people get outbreaks and they're not painful, and it's just like, oh, now I can't have sex for a little bit, and that's irritating. And some people who have herpes don't ever get outbreaks. And you can manage your outbreaks. You just, you know, it's one of those things where you can manage symptoms by like being less stressed, getting enough sleep, all of those things. There's like lots of life changes you can do because when your body is stressed, your immune system is lowered. So things pop up. You're more likely to get a cold, yeah, you know. Any, any physical ailment. Yeah. Yeah. But for some people, having herpes is kind of like a superpower in terms of like now when you tell people you have it, you get to see if you still want to fuck them or not based off their reaction oh it's a great and, screening uh tool <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and the other superpower is that uh well i don't want to call it i don't want to be like it's a superpower it's not really obviously but like it's a superpower in that like you now get to see how how often people make gross sti you are dirty for having one jokes how yes. often is someone with an sti the butt of a joke you now have a superpower in that you're able to identify all the stigma you didn't notice before <laughs> It's like you have x-ray vision. <laughs> For stigma. Yeah. Yes. And it's so common on TV. And like, I'll go to comedy shows and sometimes people make jokes. And like, as a sex educator, I'm no fun to be around anymore. Oh, I'm like that with sex work. Any sex worker jokes. Um, my husband's in comedy. So like, ooh, like once a show, at least there's a sex worker joke. And I'm like, hmm. Or an STI joke or a small penis joke or a, yeah, uh, yeah. a vulva that is disgusting to look at because it's a meat curtains joke. And I'm just sitting there like, guys, Wait. it's not 2002. We can do better. <laughs> yeah. If yeah. this is the joke you're telling, I don't think you're a very good comic. <laughs> because we've told that joke in high school. You're 32. Why are yeah. you telling the high school joke? It's not new. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry, tangent. No, it's a good tangent. I like comedy, but I like good comedy. Yeah. <laughs> like like sex positive comedy. Is that too much to ask? Yeah. Uh, honestly, I like any comedy that isn't the joke I heard in high school. If I'm paying money to see you speak, the, and you're telling a joke that some douchebag 
told in high school. I just don't think you're very funny because yeah. it's, it's like low hanging fruit. Yeah. And anyway. I've heard it. I've heard it all. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But that's also where a lot of our societal stigma comes out, too, is in comedy. So, uh, yeah. So, like, I want to remind people that chlamydia and gonorrhea, the most common symptom is no symptoms at all. Um, when it comes to syphilis, uh, frequently it's called the great pretender because you'll get something that looks like something else for like a week and it goes away on its own. So you don't think you need to get tested because, oh, the thing cleared up. Right. And that has like three stages. And um, fun fact, my husband and I had this very funny conversation about how he's like, whatever happened to like venereal disease and syphilis? You know, the one that that like makes you go crazy. And I'm like, oh, Alex, do you know what cures that? And he's like, what? I'm like, penicillin. He's like, are you serious? I'm like, the reason we're not talking about syphilis anymore is because when they invented penicillin, they found something that made it go away and cured it. Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't live in your body forever. So we don't need to be afraid of things like that. Most people are afraid of the ones that live in your body forever, like HPV and herpes and HIV. Yes. Yeah. And so because we have this idea, like, I think it comes from a really ableist culture, to be quite honest, like this value of health, perfect health over anything else. Right, right. And yeah. so um, if you have this, you're not perfectly healthy anymore. Yeah, if you have, have it associated to your va- with your value, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You got, you did this to yourself by being immoral and having sex. Yeah, right. Right? So, and because of that, now you're being punished with this disease that lives in your body forever that that is easily, you know, manageable. Even yeah. HIV now is easily manageable. People who live in first world countries like Canada, where we live, yep. it's not a death sentence. It's very livable. People do not die from their HIV or side effects anymore. Undetectable um, equals untransmittable. Right. So if you're taking PrEP and PEP, and these are the, the antiretrovirals that people take when they have HIV and the antiretrovirals their partners can take, basically makes it so that the HIV isn't being transmitted. So for a lot of people who haven't had their STI information updated in a really long time, they still think of HIV as a death sentence, and it's not anymore. Lots of people are living healthy, full lives with HIV. Um, lots of people are finding love and finding connection and being and finding respect and are in healthy relationships. One of the issues with that internalized stigma is that if you believe that message that you did something wrong and you're immoral and you don't deserve love or sex or pleasure, you end up in unhealthy relationships with people who reinforce that message. Uh, and like, oh, I can't leave this person because who else is going to love me? Lots of people. Lots of people will love you even if you have an incurable STI. It's like having any other kind of thing like diabetes where you have to treat it every day with something. Yeah. You know, psoriasis, you need to use a cream when it flares up. It's like any other illness. And so I'm trying one person at a time to get everyone to understand that we can see this as an illness just like any other. If you can cough in someone's vicinity and that person gets a cold and we don't feel guilt or shame about that, then we can have sex where we are doing our best to reduce the opportunities to transmit STIs and still not feel bad if we accidentally contract an STI. If someone knows they have an STI and is being unsafe, that is That's another story. thing. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. But like, and, and you're allowed to be annoyed that you got something. Like, it does suck yeah. to get something. Just like it sucks to get a cold from someone on a plane who is hacking behind you. This happened to me. I'm, <laughs> this happened to me last yeah. week. Like, it's okay to be annoyed and not like that that happened. But like... You don't think that that person is immoral or dirty. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't feel shame about getting a cold, like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if you have an STI that is incurable and you are struggling with how do you express that, 
a lot of, so I do dating coaching now as well, because I deal with a lot of people who are kinky and looking for love and maybe have an STI and looking for love or none of the above and looking for love. Um, and so one of the things when it comes to things like STIs and kinks, I actually put in the same category of disclosure yeah. where I genuinely believe and other people might have different opinions and other educators might have different opinions on this and that's fine. Mm-hmm. I think that like, if you put on your dating profile that you are kinky and it's a kinky dating app and the other person's kinky, then yeah, of course you're going to talk about it on a first date right? If you are on a dating app and none of that information is there, you don't need to talk about it on a first date, but you should definitely talk about it before you have sex with them. Because they need to know that long-term relationship with you involves some sort of expectation that this kink will be met. And if it can't, there needs to be a discussion of non-exclusivity, right? That's fine. Same with an STI. If you have an STI, you don't need to bring that up on a first date if if you're not going home with them that night, right? Like, that's not first date information. They don't need to know about your personal health information unless you feel like sharing. You don't even know if you want a second date with this person. So that being said, if you're going home with them that night and you're going to be having fun, then like you should, I'm sorry, I'm like censoring myself because I'm so used to Instagram and TikTok. (laughs) If you're going to go have sex with that person. You can say the word sex on here, yeah. (laughs) I know. I'm like, bedroom time, having fun. Can you tell that I'm trying to get around the algorithms (laughs) all the time? Bedroom time. I call it, I literally call it. Every time I, I'm on Instagram, I'm like, bedroom time. Inti-. I don't like using the word intimacy because that's a stupid word to describe it. Sometimes you're not being intimate. You're just fucking. You're just fucking. Anyway, yes. just fucking. <laughs> so I avoid the word intimacy as oh often as possible and say dumb shit like bedroom time. Yep. I don't say kink. I say quirk. Yeah. It's because my kink stuff will get taken down. Anyway, yeah. so so if you are trying to share your quirks before you have bedroom time. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. So if you're going to go have sex with this person. Maybe share that you have a kink so they know, so that like informed consent, maybe share your STI. But like, there's also good ways of doing it, right? You do it with confidence. You do it where you say, oh, hey, I just think that since we're gonna go have sex, there's something you should know, uh, blah, blah, blah. Here's the information. Here's what this means for you. Do you have any questions? Yeah. Right, like give them the information, pause, see how they react. And then you can determine, oh, do you need more information? Oh, would you like me to explain like how this looks in the context of what we're about to do? Yep. Right? So, for example, if you have a bedroom quirk, aka kink, if you have a, if you have a kink, and you have like a one of the common ones I get is I have a latex fetish. To which my response is, are you going to expect your partner to put on latex every time you have sex? Because that is an unreasonable expectation. Yes. And they're yep. like, no, no, no. I just like shiny things. I'm like, oh, are you fine with PVC? Are you fine with wet looks? So you can say to your partner, hey, I really like shiny things. This means latex. This means PVC. So what this means for me and you is that like, you know, um, if you're wearing something shiny, I'm going to be more turned on. Um, when you're buying lingerie for like Valentine's day, it's not going to be lace. It's going to be leather and latex, right? Like if you're going to spend money on something to impress me, a wet look tank top is more effective than a lacy, whatever. If you're buying lingerie for you, do whatever you want. Right. This might mean that like I buy us custom cat suits and every once in a while we go fucking them. And like once every few months we (laughs) put them on and we go first when we fuck, right? Like what does this mean to this person? And how much information you share like that is going to be dependent on how well you know them and if you want a relationship or not. And if you're at that point and if it's just one time sex, then you don't need to necessarily tell them about your your kink. Right. So the same thing with like 
the disclosure is dependent on like what activities are we doing here like what are we about to do are we about to say we're dating well then you would need to disclose that you're polyamorous (laughs) like right exactly you know is it like we're we're gonna fuck then maybe we should have the disclosure sti conversation are we going to do kink then we should tell them the type of kink you know and the expectations surrounding kink before we do the thing it's like yeah and so some people will say for example so for example if you currently have chlamydia Maybe wait till that's cleared up before you're having sex just to reduce the transmission rate because condoms break. Right? Like, that's just, like, an easy, like, chlamydia goes away. But if it's something like herpes or HPV, that's medical information. Your partner might be vaccinated against it. They might be like, oh, you have HPV? Cool. I want to use, like, uh, an internal condom that covers more of skin area so that, like, the genital warts aren't transmitted, but I'm protected against, you know, the common strains, and that's fine. Right? Like, that's a conversation. If you don't share those things, then, like, I I think that some people say you don't have to share herpes. Some people say you do. I'm not going to get into that debate. But I would say that if you have something like herpes, then it makes it a lot easier to determine if this is someone you want to fuck based off their reaction. Because I want to fuck people who respect me, not people who don't. And one way of figuring out if they respect you or not is disclosing that kind of information and seeing if they still respect you. And also if they share dumb information like, oh, we'll just use a condom. Then you can give, you know, if you have herpes, you give follow-up information like, actually, it's skin-to-skin contact, and the condom actually isn't going to protect against all the areas that come into contact when we have sex. So you need to be aware that just because you use a condom doesn't mean that you're protected, this and that. I find that that one tends to be a bit of a mood killer, and people get confused, and you end up being a sex educator, and then maybe you don't have sex that night. Yeah, so maybe Fine, have, have that conversation, you know, and if that is your experience with it, then maybe take that conversation a little earlier, you know, maybe have yeah. it via text before the date if yeah. that's your experience that, you know, you decide you want to fuck and then you disclose yes. in the moment and it and ends up being emotionally laborious and you don't get fucked. So <laughs> now one maybe, thing that is maybe important do it to mention, yeah. yeah, one thing that's important, to, legally, you don't have to disclose if you have any of those STIs except HIV. Legally, okay. you still need to disclose that. So if you have HIV um, and the person finds out later you didn't tell them, you could have a lawsuit on your hands. And that's not, nobody wants that. So um, good to know. Even though, even though our medication has progressed, um, our our law has not yet. So um, that is one that people should be aware of going in. Okay. Awesome. Anyway, just in terms Um, of disclosure law. No, that's But you don't have to tell people about any of the others. You just, it's like a more of a, like a personal ethics and values issue, I think. Yeah, hundred percent. Awesome. Um, I knew that we would barely feel like we're dipping we're to- the toe in uh, at yes. the one hour. I knew it because you just come with so much information. Like, if anyone has ever heard your podcast, like they'll know you're the information queen, specifically surrounding sex sexuality nerd. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. I, I was expecting to get just a fucking mouthful of information and I'm so very happy uh to have you on literally anytime so open invitation Ray you know that come back anytime anytime you're like I need another guest I need space to fill you just call me back we'll (laughs) find something (laughs) great yeah um let's talk tell the people um all the places they can find and follow you before we let you go Great. So my website is sharewithray.com. S-H-A-R-E-W-I-T-H-R-A-E.com. And so I have two main Instagrams you can follow for different kinds of information. So one place that you can find me for pictures of my butt and also (laughs) sex ed information, that is Wife Bay Ray. W-I-F-E-B-A-E. R-A-E. If you want that kind of content, you need to understand that, yes, I will post photos of myself uh, being sexy because I feel good about it and it's empowering 
and I educate at the same time. So if you have a problem with that, go fuck yourself and follow my account and learn better. So that's that one. In terms of specifically my, my like dating advice, specific account, like dating and relationship advice, that is Share With Ray. So the same as my website, S-H-A-R-E-W-I-T-H Ray, R-A-E. Great. And so if anyone is interested in coming to a sex ed workshop, or uh, my coaching services, they can contact me through any of those places. For coaching, I do a lot of dating app overhauls and in-person online combination dating tips and like working together on that. But I also work with a lot of um, couples who are like new to swinging, who are looking for someone to help them get started with having those conversations and building those boundaries. And fun fact, I also have a few different clients who are sex workers yes. who are help, trying to navigate that whole are we monogamous, non-monogamous struggle because yeah. it's hard to find a sex positive, sex work positive person who is experienced with these conversations who can help navigate them in an intentional, non-shamey way, apparently. I say this apparently because this is what I've been hearing. So <laughs> you're that person. For me, folks, I am at the Lady Pim one on Twitter. If you must go over to Instagram, I am at the Lady Pim or at the Bedpost Podcast. We have a Patreon, the Bedpost Show. We have a YouTube, it's the Bedpost Show. And I never like to go an episode without thanking the lovely lady who does all the original music for my podcast. <laughs> Her name is Steph Copeland. You can find out more about her at stephcopelandmusic.com. I just want to say one more big thank you to Ray, um, and I hope everyone enjoyed the episode. We will see you next week with another fun and sexy guest here on the Bedpost Podcast talking about sex and sexuality. Until then, get fucked, everybody. Goodbye! Bye! <laughs> Bye, Ray! This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. 